Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you what a privilege it is to share in Christ with you and to have the opportunity to come and serve you in small ways on these Lord's Day gatherings. So thankful to be with you and that you have uh, received me so well and encouraged me each time that I've come and I praise God for that and I look forward to the times when uh, we can be together. I also am thankful that uh, through the last few months and the things that have occurred, uh, my friendship with Zach has um, been revived and rekindled in ways that were quite unexpected. And I'm very thankful for you, Zach, and the encouragement that you bring to me and for welcoming me into uh, your struggles and, and, and uh, victories and those kinds of things where we can share in Christ together and bear each other's burdens. And so I'm thankful to be a part of all of this experience. I pastor a small congregation. Once a month, we go to a nursing home in Balk Springs, which is south of here on the edge of all things uh, beautiful and good. <laughs> we go to this nursing home because one of our members lives there. Each week he comes to worship in a wheelchair. Sometimes he's on a walker. Uh, but he invited us to come and to help him love and serve the people in his community. This past Wednesday, we showed up and we walked in and we're greeting different uh, residents at the nursing home, some who have become very good friends of ours. And when I was walking around making the rounds, a woman down the hall saw me and began to wave me over with her one good arm. I went over and she was in her wheelchair, trembling and shaking, literally. And uh, she began to cry. And she reached up and grabbed my hand and said, uh, she said, I need a word from the Lord. I need a word from the Lord. I said, what is wrong with you? Her name is Waquita. I said, what is wrong with you? And she said, I've done terrible things. I've said bad things to my roommate. I've, I've not been living right. I'm afraid that I'm not right with God. I need a word from the Lord. Can you help me? And she was frantic. Tears began to stream from her eyes. And she wanted me to say something, speak some truth into her life. And I could see her trembling with fear. I'll tell you what I told her in just a moment. But it made me think about this passage the passage before us today in which we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And I was struck in the moment of my conversation with her that here is a woman who is so open to the Lord and so sensitive to the things of God. And yet, oftentimes I find myself being cavalier about my walk with the Lord. 
casual about my relationship to God, not really fearing and trembling much of anything at all, except man. I have the fear of man at work in me, but not so much the fear of God. And I think the Lord used this experience in a way to stir me up, to think more deeply about this passage, not just for the sake of a sermon, but for the sake of my own soul. And so I hope that some of this is reflected, some of this meditation and reflection it comes out in the, in the sermon today. I want to tell you up front that I plan to do a couple of things. I want to start out just basically by teaching a little bit. And then as we uh, get going and the juices get flowing, maybe I'll do a little preaching at the end, okay? So let's see how this works out. I want you to see what Paul says here. He says, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Parents, you feel what Paul feels, don't you? When you look at your kids, you know that there is a massive difference between your kids doing what is right and good when you are present and watching them do it versus them doing what is right and good when you're nowhere to be seen. And nothing fills your heart with joy and peace as knowing that your kids did the right thing when you were not there helicopter parenting them, right? Teachers, you see the same thing in your classrooms. Managers, you see the same thing at work. And so do pastors. Pastors, want, we want our flocks to obey, not only when we're around, but much more when we're not around. And when we say obey, we don't mean obey us. If you have a pastor that's constantly required you to obey him, you might have a problem. You don't have that kind of pastor, but some people do. That's not Paul's point. He's not saying you need to obey me when I'm around and obey me when I'm not around. No, he's saying obey the Lord. Keep in mind the context of this statement. Last week you heard about the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus and how Jesus is seated on a throne and how one day all the world, everyone, heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before him, confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the idea in context is that Jesus is Lord and we are his servants. We are in the posture of hearing his word and obeying him. And the word for obey here comes with a word picture. I want to give you a word picture. It's the idea of you putting your ear under the mouth of the Lord. You put your ear under the mouth of the Lord. He is over you and you are under his authority. One reason churches put pulpits up above the church is not to exalt the pastor, but it's to elevate the word of God above the congregation. So the symbolism is that God is speaking to us in his word and we are receiving his word from above. This is the idea of hearing and doing. The, the two things go together here. So we hear and obey the word that comes from above, but we do these things down below. So as you bow your knee and confess Jesus is Lord, and as you put your ear under his mouth and your hands on his eyes and your life under his authority, it is from this posture that you hear his commands to you. Two commands in this passage. The first one is work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the second one is do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we're going to look at both of these, but honestly, I'm probably going to focus on the first one more because of my own weakness and frailty in this matter. Although I do my fair share of grumbling and complaining, uh, much like our dear brother Zach this past week. 
<laughs> what does it mean to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Sadly, for many people, this conjures up a variety of negative images of Christians hiding and cowering in the shadows, or of Christians anxiously trying to work for their salvation, or of Christians frantically grasping for some kind of assurance of salvation, or perhaps even of Christians just shaking in their boots because they lack assurance of salvation entirely. Some of us came from churches that wrongly encouraged this kind of anxiety. In fact, in some places, it's taken as sort of a sign of conversion, a mark of authenticity. You might hear someone say, well, if you weren't truly converted, you wouldn't even be worried about losing your salvation or gaining your salvation or, you know, the anxiety level is some kind of mark of true conversion. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. There's a man in my church who's become very dear to me. He's been a member of our church for the last four years. He's a fairly new Christian. And each week or so, maybe every other week, we have the same conversation. And it's about assurance. He comes to worship. And I can tell as soon as he walks in, I see his face. I can tell these guys had a rough week. And so I go to him and I say, brother, what's on your mind today? And he'll tell me the same thing. I just lack assurance of salvation. I say, why? What is, what is wrong with you? Right? We have this kind of relationship. What is wrong with you? And he says, well, and then he tells me how he's been taking inventory of his own life. He begins to tell me how he's been looking within and he's, he's taking notes on his life and keeping record against himself. And he can tell me all of the different ways he has failed and come up short and disobeyed and all of the ways that he wished he could do better and he can't. And he, begins, he gets kind of frantic in his confession. And I tell him every time, here's the problem, brother. The problem is that you're overly introspective. You're too interested in yourself. You're too fixated on who you are and what you've done or haven't done. You need to look outside yourself to Christ. Many of us are skilled at being introspective. We love navel-gazing. And the worse we feel about ourselves, the happier we are in our faith. Because now we think, now I must really be doing this the right way because I'm so miserable. We're to look outside of ourselves to Christ. The law says, look within, look how broken you are. But the gospel says, look out to Jesus and look how beautiful he is and what he's done for you. See, when you think in these terms, you're able to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because you're not working for your salvation. You're not working to achieve or attain your salvation. You're, you're working to uh, live consistently with it. Which is another way to translate this, by, by the way. Work according to your salvation with fear and trembling. Another problem I see in conjunction with this is that many Christians will hear this text and they believe that they must do this kind of thing alone and by themselves. That Paul is speaking to me only and he's speaking to you only and that we as individuals have this individual responsibility to work out my salvation with fear and trembling alone and by myself. That is not what Paul says, by the way. 
I'm not a Greek scholar, uh, as Zach could attest, uh, but I, I did learn enough to be dangerous, as they say, and I know enough Greek to know that in this passage, Paul is speaking to all y'all, not to you and you alone. Am I right? I found, I remembered this, I think it was in 2013, I discovered this, forgot about it until this week, but there is actually a new app called the Texas Bible that will replace the you singular with the y'all in your English Bible translations, (laughs) wherever the original language uses a second person plural. And so this passage would read like, all y'all work out y'all salvation with fear and trembling. The idea is that you get to do it together in community with other people and you're not alone and by yourself in this endeavor. So work out your own salvation is not something you do alone, but it's something you do with others. And you do it not only for your sake, but also for the sake of others, which means that you're looking out for each other. So when you see a brother or sister struggling with assurance or maybe doubting or maybe drifting off into sin or maybe forgetting their way, as you're working out your salvation collectively together as a congregation of God's people, you're able to bring each other back to Christ. You're able to say, hey, we need to look back to Jesus, don't we? And others can do that for you. That's the gist of of Paul's statement here. So if you think about it like this, I think it's going to keep you from either working for your salvation or constantly working on your salvation. Notice that Paul didn't say to do either one of those things. You're not working on your salvation as if you're trying to build it and and create it and make it. And you're not working for your salvation as if you're trying to merit and achieve it. You're working according to the salvation that Jesus Christ the Lord has already given you. So you're called to do this with reverence and awe, for God is gracious in his work within us. His work within us as a community of his people. If you have some extra time this week, I would encourage you to uh, do some Old Testament exploration. This would be a lot of fun for you. Go to Bible Gateway or whatever online Bible search engine you use or tools you have and type in the phrase fear and trembling and hit search and you will see a range of Old Testament scriptures that talk about fear and trembling and the way that worked among God's people. The most relevant one that I will mention for our purpose today comes from Psalm 2, 11 and 12, which says, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. It's a a call to worship. It's a call to do exactly what Paul has called us to do in Philippians 2 as we bow before the Lord and confess that he is Lord as we give glory to God through him. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not as sinners who are trying to get saved, but as saints who have been saved, who are being saved, and who will be saved by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why do we do this? Well, Paul says we do it for God is the one who is at work in us, both to will and to work, to wish and to work for his good pleasure. 
So again, not only are you working out your salvation with each other and for each other, God is the one who is working in you and you and you and you and even in me and all of us together. And in this way, he is fulfilling his wishes and his works in us and for us. And this makes him very happy. This makes him very happy to see his work come to fruition among his people. Last night, I was having dinner with a friend of mine who is a devout Roman Catholic, just a lovely young man. And we got into a discussion about this passage. And what we were looking at is how our different traditions emphasize different things in this passage. And I was talking about how in in different evangelical traditions, there are different emphases placed on different aspects of this. And maybe some of you have experienced this. Maybe some of you have been in a tradition that emphasized the work out your salvation part of the passage, but maybe neglected the God works in you part of the passage. Have any of you been there? When, what happens when you do that is you fall into a kind of legalistic trap, a kind of self-righteousness, a kind of uh, religious humanism where you feel like this all depends on me, man. I got to do this and I'm not doing so well, but I got to keep trying and I'm going to try to do better and work harder. It's devastating to your soul. And then others of us have come from traditions that emphasize that God works in you for his will and work. He does those things for his pleasure and emphasize that. And some people emphasize that to the degree that it removes all human responsibility as if, well, God's going to do what he wants anyway, so I don't really have to do anything. You see what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's holding both of these things together, but you have to get them in the proper order. There is an order. Yes, we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but what is that based on? It is based on God's prior work of grace, God's prior work of grace in working in us. And so, in effect, what Paul is saying is, hey, you need to work out what God is working in. You need to work out what God is working in. And so it's both and, but get it in order. God is working in you to accomplish something And you're working out what God is working in. Where does the fear and trembling come from? What comes from this power of grace and truth working in your life. And sometimes you don't know as a congregation or as an individual that you have the tolerances for that kind of power coursing through your life as a congregation. And so there is some shaking, some fear and trembling. Is this going to hold together? And as we were singing earlier, he will hold you fast. He will hold it together for you. The fear and trembling comes from God being so near to us, in us, working in us with his power. And there's a kind of reverence and awe that is generated by this presence. Now, Paul has given us here this good hard work to do. But if you're like me, there might be times when you just don't want to do it. Am I right? I mean, there are times when you just don't want to do what God has called you to do. You don't want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're having a bad day or a a bad week, and you just don't want to do it. You want to do things your way. And so you kick against the goads. You throw a little tantrum. You drum your heels on the floor like an infant because you don't want to do what Jesus has called you to do. 
So Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Maybe he knew our weakness, our frailty. He knew our response would be, I don't want to do that, man. That sounds hard. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And you know what this is? You don't have to go to Greek to get this. You just have to look at your own life and you know exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about our tendency to huff and puff and blow the house down in a rage of anger. He's talking about how we are prone to talk under our breath or mumble and growl when we don't get our way. He's talking about acting like the Hebrews who left Egypt. Don't be like your Hebrew forefathers, like the children of Israel on the Exodus who were ungrateful for every gift God lavished upon them. You know the story. They always complained. They always cried out for something different, something better. Oh, we want different food. We want different drink. We want different rules. We want different leaders. We want different scenery. Why can't we go back to where we were? And then they begin to revise history. It wasn't that bad, was it? I mean, there were whips and hard bricks to carry and Pharaoh was mean, but man, we had awesome food to eat. We had veggies in pots with meat. Let's go back. We're tired of this bread and water. They felt like prisoners under God's gracious hand. They were never content with God's gracious provision, were they? Always grumbling and disputing among themselves. Why? Because they were Egyptian at heart. God took the Hebrews out of Egypt, but the Egypt was still in the Hebrews. I can see this kind of thing in my own life. Perhaps you can see it in yours. Paul says, don't grumble and dispute. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. In fact, if you want a good example to follow, here's an example. Look at the Hebrews in exile who were gracious in the face of adversity. Think about those Hebrew young men. And I especially want you young folks to hear this because you can find some good models in these guys. The Hebrew young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Here they are living in the midst of Babylon, far away from home, living in a crooked and depraved place. And what are they doing along the way? They are working out their salvation with fear and trembling as God works in them to will and work according to his good purpose. And they don't even know what the ultimate good purpose is yet. They just know that God has called them to this. And when you look at their story, you see these are guys, these are young men who kept themselves pure, they endured hardship, they passed through fire, they shut the mouths of lions, and over the course of many, many years, we see that these guys graduated from Babylon University. They learned all the language and literature of their culture and did not lose their faith in the true and living God. They pursued careers and counseled kings and they influenced leaders and ended up changing the world as God worked in them to will and work according to his good pleasure. So I want you young folks who are hiding back there in the corner to know that this is what God has called you to do. He's called you to this kind of life. And what you see about these young men in the book of Daniel, and then you see it again in Philippians 2, is that they shone like stars in the cosmos. And you and I are called to do the same thing in the midst of our crooked and twisted generation. For we are the children of God. 
And how do we do that? We do that by holding fast to the word of life. And as we do this, we're going to find that we are impacting and influencing the world around us. And in our better moments, we will say, God is impacting and influencing the world around us, in us, and through us, as we cooperate with him and participate with him on his mission in the world. Now, I know that this can feel like a daunting task, and maybe some of you are feeling like, no, man, I'm just a tiny little spark of light in this vast, dark world. And you might even think you can't do anything to make a difference, and you might even worry that you don't shine brightly enough to be noticed or to do any good, or that you might even doubt that you will ever be able to change anything. You can't even change your own life. But I want to remind you that You are not doing these things all by yourself. Yes, you are one star in the cosmos, but you are one star shining brightly in community with other shining stars in the darkness. And all of us together are united to the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ. It is actually his light that is shining in us and through us into the darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ, who rose up from the dust dust to crush the serpent's head. What do we see him doing? We see him working in us and through us and for us. And what he works in, we must work out. And we do this for the life of the world. We're doing this for the life of the world. Well, they tell us that summer is winding down, although the temperatures don't seem to indicate that. Am I right? Uh, It's still hot as heck, and (laughs) summer's winding down. So the days are getting shorter, and that's good if you like shorter days. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Before you go to bed tonight, go outside in your backyard. It's probably less light, but go out in your backyard and look up at the sky. And look at that vast canopy of dark space above your head. And eventually what will happen is your eyes will focus on those tiny sparkles of light. The later you do this, the darker it is, the brighter those lights will appear. And if you look long enough and hard enough, you're going to see more stars than you are even able to count. And what you're looking at when you see those stars over your head are visible signs of the promises of God before your waking eyes. You're seeing what your father Abraham saw when the Lord said, look up at the stars. That's how many of your descendants I'm going to make. Rich Mullins sang in a song, I can't, uh, sometimes I think of Abraham and think that just one star he saw was lit for me. When you look into the sky, you'll see not just deep darkness, but what you'll see is that not even the deepest dark of the darkness can dampen the light of the stars. The stars are what impress people. They're the things that grab our attention and point us beyond. The same is true with the Christian church. Individual Christians are stars in the darkness. Congregations of God's people are constellations scattered around the world. What are we doing? We are pointing people away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I want you to know that what Paul was doing here was not simply waxing poetic. He wasn't just trying to find some word picture to grab our imagination. What he was actually doing is echoing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, which were spoken to the prophet Daniel. If you go back and read in Daniel 10, you will see that a man appeared before Daniel. And the man is described in a way that could only be picturesque of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that man began to speak to Daniel in this vision and reveal mysteries to Daniel. And Daniel stood before him with fear and trembling. And at the end of that vision, Christ, the fancy word for this is the Christophany, the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, said to Daniel, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul takes these words and he applies them to us and reminds us that we are not just here for ourselves and for our salvation. We are on mission from God for the life of the world to straighten out what is crooked, to transform what is twisted and perverted and to shine light into the darkness. As the old cliche goes, it's not enough to curse the darkness. You must at least light a candle. And Paul is saying, no, we're more than candles. We shine like stars in the universe. Now, again, how do we do all of this? We do all of this. uh, It's found in the word hold in your text. It's found in the word hold. We do all this by holding on to something and holding out something. The word hold here can be used in those two ways. It It can mean hold on to, closed fist, or hold out, open hand. Okay? You see the difference? Holding on to something is personal. It means clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of your might. You're not going to let it go no matter what. You are holding fast to the gospel. Holding out is missional. It means you're offering the gospel freely to as many as possible. You're offering the gospel to those who are still dwelling in darkness. And it's open-handed. Here, take it. What the Lord has given us freely, we freely offer to you. Now, you need to do both, okay? You need to do both. I'm I'm a both-and kind of guy on most things. You need to do both. We need to hold on to the word of life for our own sake, but we also need to hold out the word of life for the sake of others. And why do we do this? Coming to the home stretch, why do we do this? So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or in vain or labor in vain. Do you ever hear your pastors talk this way? Man, I never talk this way. I never say to my church, I need you to do this thing so that I can be proud and boast on the day of the Lord. And yet Paul speaks this way to his people. Why does he do this? Well, Paul says out loud what every pastor thinks on Monday morning. Every pastor's wondering on Monday morning, man, does my ministry count for something? Does it count for anyone? Does it even matter what we're trying to do here? Usually by Wednesday or Thursday, they're kind of snapping out of it. But there are a few days in there when they're wondering... Does it count? Does it matter? And Paul is saying, look, I want to know, I want to know that what I did was not wasted, was not lost on you. 
And he's not just concerned about his own personal boasting. If you read through the text, he says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, and I want you to rejoice with me. I want us to be in community together, gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ, rejoicing and praising God for what he did in us and through us and for us, for the glory of his Son and for the life of the world. And he's inviting us to join him with this. Pastors don't want to be ashamed before men. We feel this. We don't want to be ashamed before men but we certainly don't want to be ashamed before the Lord. And this is what Paul is getting at. He wants to be able to stand before Jesus and rejoice in him for a fruitful and faithful ministry that benefited the people of God under his care. And he wants the people of God to join in him, uh, join with him in that as well. There's no better way to do it than to obey the Lord, to put your ear under his mouth and do what he calls you to do to join him on mission and hold out the gospel to a world of darkness and invite others to come join you around the throne of grace to worship and praise him. May God give us the grace to do that. Well, about an hour ago, I was telling you about this woman I met at the nursing home who was so anxious and nervous Beads of sweat breaking out on her forehead, tears streaming from her eyes, grabbing me with her one good arm, her other arm paralyzed as she sat in the chair, wanting to hear a word from the Lord, needing a word of encouragement, a word of comfort. And I said to her what I'll say to you, because you don't hear it often enough, none of us hear it often enough. I said to her, Wakwita. The Lord our God is with you, and he is mighty to save. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. He will quiet you with his love. And she bowed her head, and she took a deep breath, and she said, thank you. And I said, do you want to come join us for worship? Because we have a service there. And she says, I'll go if you'll wheel me over. And so I wheeled her over. We went through the service. And at the end, she said, I need to confess my sins to my roommate because I've treated her harshly. And so we had to work on reconciling these two women together. It was a beautiful experience of the gospel at work in a place where people are forgotten by the church and set aside from the world. And yet God is working in this place. If God can work there among people like that, certainly he can work in your life as well. Some of you wrestle with assurance today and you wonder whether you should even come to the table. You dragged yourself in for worship, but you wonder, do you belong here at the table? And maybe you're thinking your fears and your uh, trembling will keep you away, that that would be the right response. But I want to say to you, you belong at this table if you are in Christ. And I'm pleading with you to set aside your fears and draw near to him as he calls you to come close Maybe your grip on him isn't as tight as you'd like it to be, but you need to know that his grip on you is stronger than even you need it to be. He loves you, and he's working in you and for you, and he's giving himself to you again and again. So let's remember that as we come eat and drink with the Lord at his table. Shall we pray together? Oh God, our Savior, we draw near to you in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you, O God, for the tender mercies extended to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who laid down his life for us at the cross and was raised up for our life. He's seated at the right hand of God, and from there he reigns and rules over the world, even over our lives. And as we listen to his command and listen to his word, part of what he says to us today is that we should come, eat, and drink that we should take the bread and drink the wine and that we should do these things as his memorial so we can remember what he has done for us and to us and in us. And I pray, O God, that you will grant us the grace to do that even now. So for those among us who are fearful and anxious, I pray you quiet their spirit with your tender love and mercy that they will know that they belong at this table we need food for our journey and food for this mission. And I pray, O God, that the darkness that crowds our hearts will be driven out by the light of Christ and that the gospel of grace and peace will reign supreme in us and over us. For your sake, for your glory, and for our good, we pray all these things. Amen.